We're coming to the end of our uh, short series on the minor prophets. I call them minor prophets only because their books are shorter than the other prophets, but they're just as important, the 12 minor prophets. We've had a short series of four of them. We're looking today at uh, the book of the prophet Amos. Uh, let's pray together as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we're conscious as we come to your word that we are uh, unworthy and incapable of understanding it, of speaking to it. And yet we thank you that in your grace you empower us by your Holy Spirit, you enable us. We pray that you would guide and direct all that we say, all that we think, our words and our thoughts, that you may change us and challenge us and enable us to be perfected as your people in union with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we'll just read the last chapter of the book of Amos, chapter 9. It's on page 770, if you're looking at the church Bibles. And I will focus on the last uh, five verses, but we'll read the whole chapter together. Amos chapter 9, page 770 in your church Bibles. Amos chapter 9, beginning at the first verse. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people, and those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, 
and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord and scripture cannot be broken. If you uh, are of a certain age or a youthful disposition, you may find the fact finders, which are at the back, helpful to you. And actually this week they have all the best jokes, so you should certainly look at them. The great gift. When you were a child, if your parents promised you a big present for your birthday or Christmas, perhaps a bike or a PlayStation, sure there are some more modern things that children today might want, how much you would look forward to that present. If it was something large, you might watch to see if someone had smuggled it into your home and hidden it somewhere. Because your parents have promised it to you, you know that you will receive that big present at the end of the time of waiting on the great day of your birthday or Christmas, whatever it is. And so you will be good because you don't want to upset your parents and risk them changing their mind about the present. And because you love them and you want to respond to their love with love. God has promised Christians as his covenant people called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ many gifts and blessings in this life. But what is the big gift? What is the great gift that God has promised us at the last day? The big gift that we should be looking forward to. Amos was the earliest of the prophets, active around 760 BC, so a long time ago, about 170 years after Israel in the north under King Jeroboam had broken away from the kingdom of Judah in the south. Amos was a shepherd and a herdsman from Judah, from a little place called Tekoa, about 16 kilometers south of Jerusalem. But he had also clearly traveled, as he said earlier in the book, that he was a dresser of sycamore figs. And there are no sycamores anywhere near Tekoa. In chapter 7, he tells us that he was not a prophet or the son of a prophet. So he wasn't part of the religious establishment. He was just an ordinary man, a farmer, with some life experience. But God called him to speak his word to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom that had broken off from Judah. 
So he was a southerner ministering entirely in the north at Bethel, where the people of Israel had their temple. It would be like me with my English voice, which I can't really change, going to do street preaching in Aberdeen or Dunfermline. You can imagine what the reaction might be. When Israel had split from Judah, they had rejected the temple at Jerusalem in Judah, the southern kingdom, and had set up at Bethel a kind of imitation version of the Jerusalem temple and its worship. But they also had their king taking part, which was against all the rules of worship. They also rejected God's word that his salvation would come through the line of King David of Jerusalem in Judah, the southern kingdom. And under their king now, when Amos is preaching, another Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, they were enjoying peace and prosperity. But the basis of their existence was a lie. They were looking after themselves rather than looking to God. They were like the child expecting a big birthday present, but behaving badly. Judah, had, the southern kingdom, had also wandered away from God. And both are all the more guilty as they know their responsibility to God as the people with whom he has made a covenant. They're both covenant nations, but both are guilty of hypocrisy in seeking to worship God without obeying him. But in the book of Amos, God is on their case. In chapter 1, verse 2, God roars like a lion to condemn all of the surrounding nations, all of which are his and are responsible to him. And then he condemns Judah and Israel by breaking, for breaking his, their covenant with him, for ignoring his law. In Israel's case, for injustice and oppression, immorality and profaning God's temple and his name. Prophecy in the Bible is always intended as corrective so that God's judgment is averted and people are restored to faithful living. So in chapter 5 of the book of Amos, God asks his people to seek him and live, not with more sacrifices at their fake temple, but with reformed living in line with God's standards of right conduct and justice. In chapter 5, verse 24, God says this, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If those words are familiar, you will, may recall them from Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream, which tomorrow will be celebrated in Washington and the United States as its 60th anniversary. Those great words come from the prophet Amos, from God. Amos goes on in chapter 6 to describe the, the destruction that will follow if the people do not repent. And in fact, in 723 BC, which is only less than 40 years after he was speaking, the Assyrians conquered and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. I don't know if you've ever tried to build a wall. I mean, a wall made out of bricks. I'm sure you could build other kinds of wall, but that's the wall I'm thinking of. A wall has to be absolutely vertical to stand up. How do you know that what you're building, the wall that you're building, is vertical. Well, to check the wall, you would use a plumb line, which is a weight on a piece of string, which, because of gravity, falls in a vertical line. 
in chapter 7 of the book of Amos, God says that he is measuring his people Israel like measuring a wall with a plumb line, and they do not measure up. Well, of course, in all of this, Amos has become a pain in the neck to Amaziah, the priest at Bethel in Israel, and the king of Israel, Jeroboam II. So they tell Amos to get lost and go back to Judah and never come back. But Amos continues to prophesy, warning of the judgment of God. And then the latter part of the book, there is a sense of impending doom for Israel. In chapter 8, Amos prophesies God's utter condemnation of mankind's sin, fulfilled at Jesus' crucifixion, when God made the sun go down at noon, reflecting the darkness that Amos prophesied. In this chapter we've read, in chapter 9, verse 7, God says to Israel, Are you not like the Cushites to me? Well, who are the Cushites? The Cushites were Nubians. Nubia is a land south of Egypt. And Egypt was the edge of the known world. God is saying to them, you are not people in the known world. You are non-persons. It would be like you saying to somebody, you're a Martian. You're not known to us. In fact, insofar as there are such beings as Martians, which we don't know, of course. Israel, in its rebellion, has become unknown to God. God is Lord of all the nations, he says. So just as he had rescued Israel from Egypt, so he had also brought up the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir. God rules all the nations. And I'm not saying here that God is withdrawing Israel's adoption or abandoning his covenant with them. In fact, he says in verse 8 of chapter 9 that we read, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, and in judging his people as with a sieve, in verse 9, no pebble shall fall to the earth. You can use a sieve in one of two ways. I don't know if you use sieves. You can either sieve something out, in which case you get the thing that falls to the ground is what you want, or you can sieve something in, like someone panning for gold. They sieve out what they don't want, but they want what's left in the sieve. That's the latter that God is talking about. He's sieving out what he doesn't want, but he will retain the remnant of the house of Jacob. No pebble shall fall to the earth. But he will judge them, and there's no escape from the judgment of God. He will pursue them wherever they try to hide, even on top of the highest mountain or in the depths of the sea, or even if they dig into Sheol, the land of the dead. God will find them and judge them. The people of Israel in verse 10 assumed that no disaster could come upon them because of their special relationship with God, but they are not exempt from his law and his justice. They had regarded themselves as the end of God's salvation, but in fact, they were only ever the means of his mission to the world. God chose Judah and Israel as the means of reaching his chosen people from all the nations of the world. Amos's vision shows that God's rule is not just over Judah and Israel, but over all nations, that he is the creator and judge of all people. In this final section, I want to look at in more detail, verses 11 to 15. Amos goes beyond God's judgment to God's ultimate goal, the salvation and restoration of all his people in a renewed kingdom. 
I'd like to look at it in three sections. Everyone likes alliteration, having the same letter at the start of each heading. And we'll have three Ps today. The people of God from verses, in verses 11 and 12. The plowman and the reaper in verse 13. And the promise of God in verses 14 and 15. The people of God in verses 11 and 12. I wonder if you have ever repaired or restored something, maybe a garment where you have sewn a tear or a seam or put a patch on it, or perhaps a piece of furniture or an ornament that you have restored. Mankind has fallen and the world is in a mess, but God is not going to leave things as they are. In verse 11, God says, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David. God will repair it and restore it and rebuild it to be in a pristine condition. Most of the book of Amos is about God's judgment and condemnation of Israel and Judah and the neighboring nations. But condemnation is not God's final word. To those he has chosen, his promise is not destruction, but restoration. In contrast to Judah and Israel represented by their temples, that God says he will smash to the ground in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says he will raise up again the fallen and ruined booth of David. The booth of King David represents those in the line of blessing through great David's greater son, the saviour of all God's people, the messianic king of whom David was only a foreshadow or a type. This is not about the physical restoration of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. In any case, as it's described as the restoration of David's booth, the people of Israel, the northern kingdom, wouldn't be part of it because they had rejected all the kings descended from David. No, Amos's vision at the end of his book is much wider. David's booth, the restored people of God, will include in verse 12 the possession of the remnant of Edom, the tribe descended from Esau, Israel's enemy. And it will include all the nations called by God's name. Through the line of David, God has covenanted to save and restore his people from many nations. So this is not about the restoration of the Old Testament nation of Israel. It's about God's restoration of his chosen people from many nations, all those called to faith in Christ. The restoration of the booth of David is in fact the creation of the church. Amos's prophecy made long ago is about us today sitting here. So when is this rebuilding of the booth of David to take place? Does the phrase in verse 11, in that day, refer to the day of the Lord, the last day, as often it does? Amos's first hearers, facing the opposition of enemy nations around them, may have wished that the day of the Lord would come soon as God's rescue of them. But Amos says, in view of their sins, that's not a very good idea. What is the saying we have? Be careful what you wish for. Amos had said in chapter 5 that, in the, that the day of the Lord, for those who had rebelled against God, is a day of darkness. He said it would be like escaping from a lion to run into a bear. A day of covenant curse, not covenant blessing. 
But you will say, I haven't answered the question, do the words in that day, in verse 11, mean the last day, the end of the world? But we need to do a bit of detective work. I know you all like detective programs, detective series. We need to do some detective work. So to answer this, can we look at the account of the meeting of the Council of Jerusalem in 48 AD? So if you can, please, if you have your Bibles there, please would you turn with me to Acts chapter 15, page 924, and the Church Bibles. And we'll look at the account of the meeting of the Council of Jerusalem. And I'll just read it to you. So Acts chapter 15, keep your finger in Amos. Just turn briefly to Acts 15. And I'll read from verse 12, page 924 in the Church Bible. Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly, that's the Council of Jerusalem, that's all the leaders of the church from across the world at that time, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, and James is the leader of the church, the moderator of the church council, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related, that Simeon is Peter, by the way, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. James, the leader of the whole church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in those early years, cites this prophecy of Amos that we're looking at as God's authorization of the admission of the Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, to the church. Peter and then Paul and Barnabas reported that God, by the work of the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of Christ, had brought many Gentiles to faith in Christ. Will the church, at that point, made up of Jewish Christians only, accept these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people, as members of the church. In seeking God's will, James declares Amos's prophecy that we're looking at in chapter 9 to be God's word to them, fulfilled in recognizing the work of the Holy Spirit and sending the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the world in accordance with Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Amos's prophecy of God's restoration of David's booth is actually about God's creation of the church by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people from many nations. In saying, as James says, with this the prophets agree, and by quoting this prophecy of Amos, James confirms that it is fulfilled in God's creation of the church and its inclusion of the Gentiles called to faith in Christ. And that includes us. That brings Amos's prophecy back to us again. God has included all Christians in his people. 
the Holy Spirit is poured out on us. We benefit from God's covenant blessings. And James is the moderator of the church, if we can call him that, the senior figure in the church. So when he applies Amos' prophecy to the admission of Gentiles to the church, that is definitive. It is God's confirmation that his restoration of David's booth is God's work of establishing the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This prophecy of Amos is about the church. God's creation of the church also fulfills his promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 to bless all the families of the earth through him and Genesis 13 that his offspring would be as many as the grains of sand or the stars in space in Genesis 15. Amos' prophecy of the restoration of the booth of David is fulfilled in the creation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by his call to faith of all his people, whether Jewish or Gentile, from all the nations of the earth. But that happens at the start of the Messianic age, inaugurated by Jesus' death and resurrection. So when Amos says, in that day, going back to Amos, in verse 11, it is applied not to the end time, but to the Messianic age from Jesus' death and resurrection. And also in James's version of the prophecy in Acts, when he says, after this I will return, the word he uses for I will return is never used in the New Testament for Jesus' second coming. So these two verses, <clears throat> 11 and 12, in Amos chapter 9, cannot be about the last day. It's about God building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But although those verses, 11 and 12, going back to Amos, are not about Christ's second coming, in describing the establishment of the church, they form the basis of God's actions at the second coming. The establishment of the church is the stepping stone to the last day, the necessary prerequisite for Christ's return and our resurrection to be with God forever. And in verse 13 of chapter 9 of Amos, Amos moves on to prophecies that describe the new heaven and earth, the dwelling place promised at the last day to the church of Christ as the restored booth of David. Jesus' second coming takes God's creation of the church onwards to his restoration of God's people in the new heaven and earth. God's promise of life in the new heaven and earth is for the church, all those whom God has called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second P, the plowman and the reaper, verse 13 of chapter 9 of Amos. If someone asked you as a Christian what do you think heaven would be like, I wonder what you would say. A popular image is that it's a place of inertia, a place of doing nothing. It's the ultimate beach holiday, only without the beach. We would be floating around among clouds with nothing to do. A biblical understanding is that at death, the body and the soul are separated. The soul of the Christian goes to be with God, but the body is dead and is buried. This happened to Jesus, but on the third day at his resurrection, his body and soul were reunited. Jesus' body couldn't be found by anybody because it had been raised and reunited with his soul. And we are promised the same at our resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Our resurrection is part of his, and our bodies will be like his. 
although described in the New Testament as spiritual bodies, our bodies will be physical. Just as Jesus was able to eat part of a fish or to cook breakfast or to be touched, we also will be able to do things physically and we will have things to do as part of our worship of God. But our resurrection won't take place until the last day, the day of Jesus' second coming, when he will return to restore his people and renew the whole cosmos, the whole universe, as the new heaven and earth, one entity. Today, heaven and earth are different places. But in the renewed creation, heaven and earth will be one place, the dwelling place of God Almighty, Father, Son and Spirit. That is the heaven to which we look forward and is set out in Amos's vision. It will be a physical place, a tangible and real place. We shouldn't take this vision as being just figurative. Amos is describing something real. The vision of the plowman and the reaper is about the new heaven and earth, the land God will give to his people. And the fertility and the productivity of the restored land will be astonishing. We're used to having one growing season. If you buy a packet of seeds, maybe sometimes you will do this, it may tell you to plant the seeds in February or March or April, and the plant will grow and flower in July or August, whatever it may be. We have one growing season. There are some countries in the world where there are two growing seasons where the climate is very favorable. But the abundant productivity of the restored land in Amos's vision will be so amazing that the growing season will be all the time, with no pause for winter, no need for land to lie fallow. As soon as the reaper, you know what a reaper is, don't you? You've all seen Poldark, where the hero strips off his shirt and scythes the corn. That's reaping. As soon as the reaper has harvested one crop, the plowman comes right behind, planting the next. In fact, he's so hard on the heels of the reaper that's as if he will overtake him. Of course, it's an exaggeration. Just as you might exaggerate if your journey here was so quick, you might say it was so quick that it was as if I arrived before I left home. And as soon as someone sows the grape seed, the grape plants grow so quickly that the treader of grapes comes to pick the grapes and gather them for the wine press almost before the seed has been sown. It's that productive. And the mountains and all the hills shall drip and flow with sweet wine. The land will be so productive that it will be as if the mountains themselves drip with wine instead of water. You might recall Jesus' miracle at Cana. So this is not just restoring the land as we know it now, with climate change reversed. It's not just like the Garden of Eden, but it's even better with productivity that uh, is astonishing to us. A land that is at last totally free from the curse that God pronounced in Genesis 3 as part of the curse of Adam. Creation free at last from the disease and corruption that came from man's sin. A land with greater abundance than anything we can imagine. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is what the new heaven and earth will be like, 
the heaven that God promises to all his people, all those who are called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ from many nations, eternal life in a real physical land pulsating with explosive fruitfulness in the renewed creation, restored at the last day when Christ returns to reign with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit residing with his chosen people forever in the new heaven and earth. The third P, the promise of God, verses 14 and 15. From the vision of the fruitfulness of the land, Amos sets out the wider promises of God in the restoration of his people who have been set free from sin altogether and forever. What God gives in the new heaven and earth will never be lost or taken away. And what he gives is over and above what his people have lost in this life, all restored to them in abundance, their cities and homes and land, restored and given by God in overflowing prosperity. And they will enjoy these things in obedience to God with thanksgiving and in recognition of their Davidic Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant deliverer of Isaiah 59, quoted in Romans 11, who will banish ungodliness and take away their sins, the one who by his life, death and resurrection has fulfilled God's covenant so that God can restore his people to be with him forever in his fullest blessing. This blessing of God is his people's final state to be enjoyed forever. They shall never again be uprooted, we read in Amos's prophecy. This is eternal life lived as the full satisfaction of God's covenant blessing, not subject to change or decay or corruption, not conditional upon anything else, but resting entirely upon the grace of God. In the last words of the book, in verse 15, we read, says the Lord your God, and Lord is in capital letters, so that means his personal name, Yahweh, showing that this ultimate blessing from God is through the word of God. These are God's words. And in his almighty power, he will accomplish what he has promised and purposed from eternity. What does all this mean to us? Of course, it goes beyond being like a child looking forward to a big present. As Christians, we have been called into a relationship with God and we love him and want to please him. And we know that the only way of being saved from sin and death is by faith in Jesus, who took on our human flesh, dying in our place, that we might be brought to God as his covenant people. And the eternal life that he gives us is not just an end in itself now, but it leads to something. It leads us to share in God's promise of total restoration in the new heaven and earth and a perfection that is far beyond what there is or has been. The final kingdom of God, where there is no sin or decay or death or tears, where all of God's people are blessed and joyful, productive and loved, at one with God in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory into eternity. And that changes our lives. Whatever we face, we are always with God always united to the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that in his amazing love, the great gift that God promises us is life with him forever, both now and in his glorious, renewed creation. Let's pray together.